Chief Justice, may it please the court. I'm Giancarlo Conoparo. I'm Zach Smith. And welcome to SCOTUS 101, where we break down what's happening at the Supreme Court, what the justices are up to, and other things related to our favorite branch of government. Welcome back to another season of SCOTUS 101. Giancarlo and I are excited to dive back into everything SCOTUS-related. And to get us started, uh, we have a special episode this week. It's a Supreme Court preview with former Solicitor General Paul Clement and former Acting Solicitor General Jeff Wall. I had the pleasure of moderating this panel here at the Heritage Foundation earlier this week, and we thought all of you would enjoy getting to hear Paul and Jeff's thoughts in the lead-up to the new term. Uh, So take a listen and learn about what will be happening at the Supreme Court starting next week. The Supreme Court preview of the 2022-23 term. Please welcome Zach Smith, Legal Fellow and Manager of the Supreme Court and Appellate Advocacy Program in the Heritage Foundation's Mies Center. Well, good afternoon. Welcome to the Heritage Foundation's annual Supreme Court Review. We're very glad to have you join us, whether you're here with us in person or watching online or on television. Uh, As was just mentioned, my name is Zach Smith, and I serve as a legal fellow and as the manager of the Supreme Court and Appellate Advocacy Program here in the Mies Center for Legal and Judicial Studies at the Heritage Foundation. The Supreme Court is set to begin hearing arguments for the cases in its new term next week, so we thought this would be the perfect time to discuss some of those cases and preview what we can expect. While the court's last term contained a number of blockbuster decisions dealing with abortion rights, gun rights, religious liberty, and free speech issues, just to name a few, the court this term will also tackle a number of important cases and issues, everything from affirmative action to redistricting to religious liberty cases to cases that touch on the ability of courts to hear challenges to certain agency actions and structures. To help us break it all down, I'm joined today by two advocates who really need no introduction, so I'll keep them very brief. First is Paul Clement. Paul has argued over 100 cases before the Supreme Court, including several of the biggest cases from last term, including the Coach Kennedy case, Kennedy versus Bremerton School District, and a major Second Amendment case, New York State Rifle and Pistol Association versus Bruin. Paul currently serves as a partner at his recently formed law firm of Clement Murphy, and he previously served as the 43rd Solicitor General of the United States. Joining Paul is Jeff Wall. Jeff is currently a partner at Sullivan and Cromwell, where he leads the firm's Supreme Court and appellate advocacy practice. Jeff has argued 30 cases at the U.S. Supreme Court, and he previously served twice as the acting Solicitor General. Please give me a hand as I welcome Paul and Jeff to the stage. Thank you both for joining me today uh, to talk about the uh, court's cases that it will hear this term. And since we have a lot to cover, we'll get right into it. Uh, Paul, could you tell us about one of the first cases the court will hear when it begins arguments next week, uh, Sackett versus EPA? I'd be happy to, Zach. It's great to be here. It's great to be back at this event, which I think is uh, kind of an annual tradition to kick off the term. So very happy to, to, to join you and be at Heritage. Um, the Sackett against EPA case, there may be some people in the audience, and it seems like it sounds familiar. Wasn't there another Sackett against EPA case? And this is a case that sort of you can think of as being a repeater, um, a case that the Supreme Court decides once, um, sends it back often to the Ninth Circuit, um, and then gets the case back a few years later. Um, and I think often in these repeater cases, you can be pretty sure that the court is going to sort of finish the job that it started uh, the first time around. And I think um, that could be the case in the Sackett uh, case. The first time around, the question was really whether the Sacketts, who were trying to uh, build on a lot that they purchased um, near Priest Lake, um, they were the, the EPA tried to stop them from building on their lot. And not only the first time around did they try to stop them, but they basically said, and we're going to impose a bunch of penalties if you go forward and you can't challenge any of this until the end of the administrative process. And the court, uh, I think unanimously uh, last time around, said, no, that's not right. Um, You get an ability to challenge um, before essentially the government 
precludes you from being able to develop your lot. And so the question goes back to the Ninth Circuit. And now the question that the Ninth Circuit's decided and is before the court is another one that might sound kind of familiar from a previous Supreme Court case, and that is, what is the reach of the waters of the United States for purposes of figuring out the scope of the Clean Water Act? And this was a, an issue before the Supreme Court, um, you know, about 15 years ago in a case called Rapanos um, that I actually argued uh, while I was in the, the SG's office. And as often happened in the court back at that time, um, the, there were four justices that had a very uh, clear view that would have limited federal jurisdiction. There were four justices that had a very clear view that would have extended uh, the jurisdiction to properties like the Sacketts. Um, and then there was one justice. His name was Justice Anthony Kennedy. Um, and he had the deciding vote in the case. And he wrote a separate opinion uh, that talked about the need for a substantial nexus between the water and at, at issue or the wetland at issue and the navigable waters. And eight other justices didn't think that was the right test. Um, but at the Supreme Court, the number five is incredibly important. So Justice Kennedy's separate writing became the doctrine that controlled in the lower courts and is controlled for over a decade now. Um, I think it's fair to say that the lower courts have had trouble applying that test, and I think that's a big part of the reason that the case is back before the court uh, this term. The underlying question, I think, and you know, I, I may be betraying the fact that you know I argued this for the government back in the day, but the underlying question is actually kind of hard because I think everybody can almost concede that in the context of regulating kind of the, the water and trying to keep the water clean, what kind of matters at some level is whether the water is kind of connected through a series of tributaries or streams such that if you pollute water someplace, it's going to get into the rest of the stream system. And so from that standpoint, you know, it's probably easy to say if you have just some isolated lake that doesn't drain into anything, you know, that's not covered. But if you have something, even though it doesn't really seem like a navigable waterway, but if you dump chemicals there and they eventually get into and pollute the navigable waterways, it seems sensible that the regime might reach that far. But the problem is, like, the people who passed the Clean Water Act were not stupid, and they recognized as much, and yet they still wrote a statute that didn't try to cover everything and use this definition for waters of the United States. And so Congress, even at the time, kind of recognized that the regime that it was enacting was kind of somewhat imperfect. And so it's why this issue, I think, has recurred again and again. This is really like the third or fourth time the court has wrestled with this question, particularly in the context of wetlands that are adjacent to uh, navigable waters of the United States. And so you know, I, I don't want to get in the business of sort of predicting results, but given that in the Rapanos case, Justice Scalia wrote the plurality opinion that would substantially restrict the, the scope of the navigable waters, and given a lot of the current justices seem to think pretty highly of Justice Scalia, um, combined with the fact that uh, this is a repeater and the court sort of took this case in a context where they already had some sympathy for the homeowner, I'd, I'd just say this sets up, I think, pretty well for the Sacketts. Yeah, look, I don't have much to add to Paul's description. I mean, I uh, I was at the Sackett argument, what was it now, 10, 11 years ago. It did not go well for the government. They were all fairly surprised that the Sacketts couldn't challenge, and I think several of them were fairly surprised that the Sacketts' property, which is separated from any water by a considerable distance, a ditch, a road, uh, was a you know part of a water of the United States, uh, and so now that that question is back, I think Paul's right that uh, Justice Scalia's plurality is is set to carry the day. 
Jeff, if we could uh, continue with you, could you tell us about another case the court set to hear next week, uh, Merrill versus Milligan? Yeah, so it's a really important case, but it, it may not be one that you know, if you're not a voting rights advocate or scholar, you'd be following. But I, I think it could stand to be uh, very important. So it's a case about Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act. And Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act prohibits the denial or abridgment of the right to vote on account of race. But under uh, some amendments that were put in place in the statute, it defines that denial by saying um, it, it's any time you don't have equal opportunity for, uh, for racists to vote. So what does that mean, equal opportunity? And in a case called Jingles, uh, you know, many years back, the court set up a fairly complicated test for what that means. It's got three preconditions, and then you move to a totality test. So you look to see whether... Minority voters are sufficiently large in numbers and compact that you could draw a district where they would form a majority, what's, what's in the lingo called a majority-minority district. And then you look to see whether those minority voters vote cohesively as a political block, and then you look to see whether they are uh, outvoted by majority voters who are also voting cohesively as a political block. If all three of those jingles preconditions are met, then you move to a totality of the circumstances test to determine whether they've been denied the right to vote and whether you should draw the district lines differently. Uh, so all of this is what's known as a body of law on vote dilution, whether you've diluted the power of minority voters to elect a candidate of their, uh, of their choice. So to take a step back for just a second, uh, about a year, year and a half ago, the court decided a case out of Arizona. It was not a vote dilution claim. It was a case about uh, certain time, place, and manner restrictions. Arizona had said you couldn't vote out of your district, and only certain people could like take your ballot in, what's called ballot collection, or some people call it ballot harvesting. And so Arizona had these restrictions in place, and it came up to the court under Section 2. And the court said, you know, the jingles test, it doesn't work very well in the non-vote dilution context for time, place, and manner restrictions. We're going to go back to the text of Section 2. And Justice Alito, in his opinion, tried to adopt um, still a multi-factor test because the totality of the circumstances test is kind of embedded in the language of the statute, but something more tied to, in, in the majority's view, the text of Section 2. Now that the, the court has done that, adopted this test for non-vote dilution claims under Section 2, the question's now back up there, well, what should we do with vote dilution claims? And what happened in Alabama, which is where this case comes out of, is that uh, for many years, Alabama has had one majority-minority district where African-American voters form a majority of the district. But the claim was that with population changes, there should be two. And the three-judge panel agreed with that and said to the state, you've got to redistrict in a way that draws two districts where the minority voters make up a majority and could elect the candidate of their choice. Alabama sought a stay in the Supreme Court, which they got five to four. Justice Kagan, writing for the uh, more liberal justices, wouldn't have granted the stay. The chief justice wrote to say, I think we should take this case, put it on our docket, but I wouldn't grant the stay. Justice Kavanaugh joined by Justice Alito saying, look, I'm granting the stay because I wouldn't allow interference this close to the election. The primary is coming up in six or seven weeks. We're not going to redraw the district lines a month and a half before people are supposed to, to go to the polls in the primary. And the more conservative justices voting for the stay but not writing separately, so suggesting that they may have granted on the um, on the merits. So Alabama you know, got the stay, but the court took the case and put it on its docket. Alabama makes a pretty aggressive play for doing on the vote dilution side what the court did in Brnovich, really revisiting jingles and diminishing the use of race. Um, and the defenders of what the three-judge panel came down and the folks who have challenged the old Alabama plants have really urged the court to sort of stick to jingles. The reason I think it's important is because if the challengers succeed in getting the court to say, 
look, you can't consider race too much in a way that moves districts from where they would end up using race-neutral redistricting criteria like communities of interest and compactness and you know existing lines and the old plan, that would be a pretty significant change in the way that Section 2 cases get litigated, depending on what the court says and how much it changes uh, jingles. So I think in the voting rights context, it's a case that could stand to be really important depending on what the court says on the merits. Anything to add, Paul? Well, let's stay with the election-related uh, theme. And Paul, could you tell us about the case of Moore versus Harper? Sure. I, I, I would be happy to talk about this case, and this case is being sort of referred to, I think, as like the independent legislature theory or kind of other slightly sort of shadowy terms. Um, but I think ultimately this is a case that will be about the, the text of the Constitution, um, because the, the, the framers kind of wrestled directly with the question of how to deal with um, elections, particularly congressional elections, and where to vest authority to put the restrictions, and regulations, time, place, and manner, and the like on federal congressional elections. And where they settled in the text of the Constitution is to give that authority to the state legislatures. And they use, you know, the, the, it's specific. It, the Constitution doesn't give it to the states. It gives it to the state legislatures. Um, so if you were just looking at the text of the Constitution, it would seem like there was a pretty strong argument that when the state legislature comes up with uh, districting lines, assuming that the election clause is fully applicable to districting lines as well as sort of times of the, the, the polls being open and the like. It seems pretty clear from the text of the Constitution that if the state legislature sets that, that maybe the state courts aren't in a position to second-guess that applying state constitutional law or state other law. Um, but a few years ago, the Supreme Court, in a case called the Arizona uh, Republican Legislature against the Arizona Independent Districting Commission, um, sort of came across this same text and basically said it was okay for Arizona to give the redistricting authority, uh, take it away from the state legislature, and give it to an independent commission. And that was a 5-4 uh, decision, and uh, the chief justice was in dissent, along with uh, Justice Scalia and Justice Thomas and Justice Alito. And so I think in some respects the, the, the court is going to be revisiting this question um, in the context of uh, a, a redistricting case where it's the state legislature that did the congressional districting and a state court has essentially countermanded it. And I think you know, there's going to be considerations of stare decisis, considerations of textualism, um, and the like. One of the things that just – I mean just to, to sort of wax into being a law geek for a second that I think is so interesting about this issue is – you know, a lot of times in these electioneering cases and redistricting cases, including the one that Jeff was just talking about, there's, there's kind of a federalism overlay and the idea of like how much does a federal law like Section 2 kind of interfere with the authority of the states to kind of structure themselves the way they want. But in the specific context of congressional elections, um, you know what the what the state legislature is doing is actually i think the right way to think about it is exercising expressly delegated federal power um so it's not it's not just kind of drawing these districts as part of its residual sovereignty it's drawing these districts as part of a specific delegation from the federal constitution to do something that's distinctly federal namely set the rules for a federal congressional election and I think if you think about it in those terms, it does kind of strengthen the argument that really there shouldn't be a basis for a state court applying state law to interfere with what is really a federal authority that's being exercised by the state legislatures. But obviously this is a hotly contested case. I think uh, you know people particularly on the political left sort of view this as sort of a grave threat to the role of the courts in superintending elections and the like. Um, but you know, I do think there's a strong argument that's being made on behalf of the North Carolina legislature here that really 
you know, the, the framers thought about this issue specifically, and it's not that they thought that these issues weren't fraught with controversy. They just thought it was better to give this controversial role to a politically accountable body like the state legislatures and not a relatively unaccountable body like state courts. Yeah, so th- this is one where maybe I, maybe Paul and I have a, sl- a slightly different take in the sense that in a lot of these cases, sort of one side wants to be the champion of textualism and originalism, and the other side sort of has has policy concerns. I'm you know, I'm, I'm interested to see where the conservative justices line up because it seems to me that the folks opposing the independent state legislature doctrine have some fairly plausible textual and originalist arguments, like the election clause gives power to Congress, too, in the second part of the clause. But we all think that's subject to, you know, presidential veto and judicial review. So, you know, their argument is, look, when you vested the power in state legislatures, you had the same assumption. It'd be subject to the normal state lawmaking processes. And they say there were some state constitutional provisions in between the Articles of Confederation and the Constitution. And nobody seemed to think those were a problem when the Elections Clause basically adopted the same language they'd had in the Articles of Confederation. So it's interesting that you, you know, you've got some, te- some, some pretty plausible textualist and originalist arguments on both sides. And on the conservative side, you have what I, I think Paul sort of hinted at, which is a concern that state courts are taking these vague constitutional provisions and really using it to override what the state legislature has done and sometimes doing it on the eve of elections. And that seems to really be troubling some of the um, some of the conservative justices. So I'm I'm. Uh, particularly on the right side of the court, I'm really interested to see kind of what they want to talk about at the argument, because I, I, um, I think both sides have tried to marshal the kinds of arguments that they tend to care about. Well, shifting gears a little bit now, uh, Jeff, could you tell us about what I've heard called the Bacon case or the Hog case? It's a National Pork Producers Council versus Ross. Yeah, it's, uh, so this is really a fascinating case. I mean, it's a case about federalism at the end of the day. So, you know, California does not like the way that pork producers uh, are treating their animals. And so California produces very little pork. I think they have like, you know, 1% of the, of, of, you know, pork production happens in California. But California consumes about 13% of the nation's uh, pork. So they, uh, they, don't, they don't produce it, but they consume it. And California, in this proposition they adopted, has said, if you want to bring pork into the state and sell it to folks here in California, you got to produce it under certain conditions, right? we got to have a 24-square-foot pen. The sow's got to be able to turn around without hitting the barriers and, and, and that sort of thing. These are not conditions that almost any current commercial uh, pork operator could satisfy. So I think everybody in the case concedes that if California's restriction takes effect, that it will force many pork producers to change the way that they do things. And the question is, can California do that? Well, there's a doctrine that I learned about in law school, and Paul did too, that's ready-made to police states doing things uh, that go on in other states but also affect them. It's called the Dormant Commerce Clause. That's what it's all about, right? Keeping states from throwing up barriers to interstate commerce. And so uh, the National Pork Producers Council says on two different grounds, this is a dormant commerce clause violation. First, they say California is trying to regulate extraterritorially, right? It's just trying to govern the way that pork is produced outside of California and that it can't do. And it says even if we're wrong about the extraterritorial thing, and this does have you know enough of an in-state nexus because you're regulating the pork as it comes into the state, there's this case called Pike, you know Bruce Pike v. Bruce Church, what's called the Pike balancing test, which I learned about in con law, which is you know the state's law still has to be measured under some cost-benefit weighing, and does California's interest outweigh? whatever the costs are that it is imposing on the out-of-state uh, economic actors. And so the, uh, 
council says, even if we're not right about extraterritoriality, we're right about the pike balancing. California's interests are weak or not cognizable, and the costs are, are really severe. California comes back with an argument that, like, you know, every Justice Thomas clerk in the world would love. What is this dormant commerce clause thing of which you speak? It's not a constitutional thing. These cases are made up, they say, and even if they're not, the cases are narrower than the council reads them. The reason I think the case is so interesting is because not just does it make for sort of interesting bedfellows on the constitutional side, because the folks who have been most vocal about their criticisms of the Dormant Commerce Clause are also the ones most likely to be skeptical of the California regulation. But because if the court upholds it, if some combination of justices allows California to move forward, there's a really serious question about what kind of balkanization follows, right? I mean, what about when Arkansas says pork has to be produced in, in its current methods in order to be sold in our state, right? What are the pork producers to do? Or to take a much you know, more controversial example, what about when states say you can only do business here if you have particular kinds of abortion uh, policies? And some states say we want you to have abortion-friendly policies, and some say we don't, right? The, the sort of possibilities when you sort of play out the hypotheticals are, uh, get very difficult very fast. And the question is, like for all the talk of federalism and for all the criticism of the Dormant Commerce Clause, what will the justices do when faced with the prospect that states could very quickly begin to pass laws uh, that would be in direct conflict? Now, what Justice Scalia, Paul's former boss, would say is, that's why we have the real actual Commerce Clause. Congress can always step in and do anything. But in the current political environment, the prospects that Congress would do something about many of these things are, are fairly low. And so that prospect may seem to them more academic than um, than real. So I, I, again, it's another argument that I, I'm, I, you know, maybe Paul has thoughts of being, I'm, I'm interested to see how it goes. No, I agree. It's an important uh, question. I would say just to, I'd start with like a practice tip for anybody who's in the position of trying to sort of vindicate the Commerce Clause and try to get this kind of protectionist state action um, struck down. I, I wouldn't call it the dormant Commerce Clause. That's just asking for trouble. It's just the Commerce Clause. Um, and there's a long line of cases that interpret the Commerce Clause to put certain restrictions on the states. W what I think is interesting is kind of even, you know, I, I can't speak to Justice Thomas, but at least to Justice Scalia and most of the right side of the court, there are aspects of that Commerce Clause jurisprudence um, that the, the justices are more comfortable with. The idea that you can't expressly discriminate against out-of-state commerce and you can't regulate extraterritorially. And then there is this kind of residual aspect of the court's Commerce Clause jurisprudence, pike balancing, that I think, you know, traditionally the right side of the court has been very skeptical of. And, you know, there's a lot of areas of the law where you get to a point of applying a test and, like, in theory, you're supposed to apply to the test, but you really know that the case is over one way or another. So in a First Amendment case, if you can get to, to strict scrutiny, you're basically supposed to win and the government's supposed to lose. And in the same way, if you're bringing a Commerce Clause challenge and you get to pike balancing, you've lost. And, and so it will, you know, for, for the court, I guess my, you know, my, my, my sense is that they may try to work really hard to put this in the extraterritorial box, even though it doesn't fit there perfectly, as opposed to really reviving pike balancing. Because if they if they did the latter, I think it would be a, a very big development, but a very surprising development, frankly. Um, though, as Jeff says, you know, maybe they'll maybe they'll side with California in the end. But it does seem like, compared to most cases, the prospect for balkanization is kind of more sort of obvious here than in a lot of the the cases where it's kind of obscured because it's just like tax rates or something like that. I, I think Jeff's point about like what's a pork producer to do. Um, is is a very fair one. Paul, could you tell us about the 303 creative case? 
Sure. Well, speaking of cases where strict scrutiny is applied and turns out not to be fatal, um, which is a very rare uh, bird, um, that's essentially what the what the Tenth Circuit did in the 303 Creative case. Um, this case, more broadly, I think, is really a follow-on to the Masterpiece Cake Shop case from a couple of terms ago, and it raises one of these, I think, kind of you know very interesting questions. It's almost kind of a collision of two doctrines in kind of constitutional or at least statutory law. Um, one, of course, is a non-discrimination principle applied to sexual orientation and same-sex marriage. That's something that obviously led the court to find constitutional protection for uh, same-sex marriage in Obergefell. That was uh, kind of one of the kind of central doctrines, I think, or legacies of Justice Kennedy on the court um, is, you know, in a number of cases kind of culminating in that case, he, he provided protection uh, for sexual orientation. Um, and then on the other side, though, is this kind of strong sort of First Amendment doctrine, sometimes moored in free exercise principles, but in this case, moored exclusively in free speech principles that, you know, generally speaking, if you're engaged in sort of expressive activity, you don't have to engage in expressive uh, activity that you disagree with. Um, the right to speak includes the right not to speak. And those two cases, those two doctrines are really on something of a collision course here. You have somebody who does – they have a, a company that's involved in web design. Um, they are um, – you know, they have a religious belief and a First Amendment free speech belief that leads them to think that they are happy to uh, provide these kind of services for traditional weddings, uh, weddings that, you know – quote, Bible verses and, and the like, but they're not willing to provide the same service for uh, a same-sex service. And that is something that they believed would be contrary to Colorado law, as interpreted by the Colorado Civil Rights Commission, kind of analogously to in the Masterpiece Cake Shop, which also came out of Colorado. Um, and so they essentially brought a declaratory judgment action challenging that and saying they essentially had a First Amendment right um, to uh, essentially operate their web design service uh, in a way that was consistent with their beliefs and their 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 free speech beliefs. It's the case – the posture is a little bit different from Masterpiece Cake Shop because you don't have the actual like enforcement decision um, and there you know there is a sense that 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 this is – kind of case is being kind of more affirmatively set up to be the follow-on to Masterpiece Cake Shop. I don't know if that will sort of concern any of the justices. Frankly, one of the things it will do is probably not give the court the out it took in the Masterpiece Cake Shop where they were able to point to statements made in the proceedings before the Colorado Commission and use them as a way to decide the case without reaching the broader question. So I do think this case will cause the court to really confront and kind of wrestle with uh, this, this kind of conflict between these two doctrines. And as I said, this case is, is teed up to involve only a free speech claim. But I think in the background is going to be the idea of, you know, how to free exercise principles um, apply in this context, what happens when free exercise principles come in conflict with this kind of non-discrimination principle. I think those that's, that's an issue that the court has kind of danced around a couple of times. I think it's a very important issue. And so I think in a sense, this will be a case where it's important to watch not just what the court decides on the facts of this one case, but kind of what they say more generally, because I think this case will probably provide a lot more clarity than the Masterpiece Cake Shop case did. Yeah, in, in another sense, too, which is, you know, Masterpiece was about a baker, and there were a lot of folks on the, you know, the sort of non-baker side who said, look, it's not really speech, it's baking a cake, maybe it's a little artistic, but not really, so this is kind of free speech, not at all, or free speech light. And now it's a website with personalized messages, and there's no way, as Paul says, I think, to get out of confronting the question this time around. It's squarely presented with all of the religious liberty concerns still in the backdrop. But it's very hard to see now how you can get away from 
uh, from con confronting the First Amendment question. Jeff, could you tell us about a pair of other closely watched cases uh, this term, the Harvard and UNC cases? Yeah, I, look, these are cases you all probably know about, right? I mean, uh, Paul was involved in a little pair of cases back in Michigan back in the day, weren't you? Grutter and Gratz, uh, where Justice O'Connor famously said, look, I think you know the use of race in, in admissions and higher education uh, is, you know, one hopes, I think she said, we won't need it in 25 years. And we're not quite at 25 years, but you get the sense that the lease may be coming up a few years early. So there are two cases. One's Harvard, one's UNC. Uh, UNC is public, governed by the Equal Protection Clause. Harvard is private, governed by Title VI, because it accepts federal funds. And Title VI forbids discrimination on the basis of race. Uh, the question is, what do the Equal Protection Clause and Title VI mean? Um, there are two claims in the case. The first claim, or the first argument, is you can't use race in uh, considering admissions in higher education at all. Right? And the second is, even if you can, the way that Harvard and UNC are using it doesn't comply with strict scrutiny and the court's tests. On the first one, I don't have a lot to add to the briefs. I mean, you all can... Uh, read all the you know the mountains that have been written about the history and original meaning of the 14th Amendment. You can look at the Plessy dissent. You can look at Brown. You can look at the post-Reconstruction statutes in the briefs, and you can form your own views about what the meaning of the 14th Amendment is. I want to focus on the second claim because in some cases, you know, if you have a really good argument on a second question, it may mean that they'll do the narrow thing and not do the broad thing you want on the first question. This case is potentially a little bit different, which is to say, if the court thinks that argument that what Harvard and UNC are doing is in some sense not permissible or not what they've intended in, in Grutter and Gratz and Fisher, it might tend to confirm the view of some that they ought to just say that you shouldn't be using race in the college admissions process at all. Because notwithstanding what they've said in Grutter and Fisher, the schools are still doing things that they find troublesome. So I'll focus just on Harvard for a second because that's the case that's gotten the most attention, had a full trial, and, and is, the, is the focus of the briefs. And all the terms I use are drawn from the briefs themselves and from the lower court uh, uh, opinion. And the challengers, just so you understand the argument, sort of take it in, in kind of three waves. The first thing the challengers say is Harvard is racially balancing its class. If you look from 2009 to 2018 and you treated the class as a pie chart, it would be remarkably consistent across those 10 years. The percentage of students in the class who are white or African-American or Hispanic would only vary within a 2% range except for one or two outlier years where it might go up or down by, by one more point. But the, the pie chart would look remarkably consistent over the decade. And the challengers say, that must mean that you are using race to try to balance your class. Second, they say, the way that Harvard is doing that is uh, it is affecting what's called the personal rating. So everybody who applies to Harvard, um, those folks who may have gotten in and those of us who didn't, we were all scored. And you get a bunch of scores, and they're on academics and athletics and extracurriculars, and those are all fairly objective. But you also get what's called a personal rating, and that's meant to assess things like character and integrity and leadership. So it's a pretty subjective rating. And no one disputes that Asian Americans receive a lower personal rating as a group than other uh, racial groups who apply. Even the district court which was otherwise fairly favorable to Harvard, agreed that there is a statistically significant negative correlation between race and the personal rating for Asian Americans. And the challengers say that's because Harvard is using that rating in order to affect the number of Asian Americans who come into the, to the class. Harvard says no, we're not biased in that way. Maybe there's bias that filters in from high school teachers or guidance counselors, but it isn't us, it has to be somebody else in the process. And the third thing the challengers say is they're ignoring a race-neutral alternative. The reason they need to do this, according to the challengers, is because they admit they have racial preferences, or sorry, preferences, not by race, but preferences for the children of donors, faculty and staff, legacies, folks who went to Harvard in the past, and recruited athletes. And the vast majority, the challengers say, of the percentage of the class admitted for those preferences, those kids are white, 
So it leaves Harvard with fewer spaces, and that's why it needs to balance and tinker with the personal rating. The challengers say that isn't true and that isn't what they're they're doing. And so I, I, I think sort of the what I'm interested to see at the argument is how much time is spent on the broad 14th Amendment question and how much time is spent on what the schools actually do. Because I think some of the conservative justices could make uh, Seth Waxman, who's arguing for Harvard, you know, they could ask some very difficult questions about what the schools are actually doing with, with race. And I don't think that those would be questions suggesting some negative strict scrutiny ruling at the end of the day. I think they would be questions designed to try to show that the schools are not going to be able to use any race in any of the kinds of holistic ways that the court has said are, are okay. But, you know, Paul, you've been involved in these cases. So, you know, thoughts? So I, I just think the thing that makes this case potentially difficult for the court is sort of, the, you know, the, the, a little bit the question of what happens if they say that what kind of Harvard and North Carolina are doing is unconstitutional, sort of what happens next? Because I think there is going to be this sense that the universities are not going to just overnight say, okay, forget about it. We'll just, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll grab Justice Harlan's dissent from Plessy. We'll take all consideration of all of that stuff out and we will um, just um, sort of, you know, just, just not worry about sort of the composition of our class. I don't think that's going to happen. I don't think the justices expect that's going to happen. And so I think, you know, that's, that's maybe another way of getting at Jeff's point, which is these questions about kind of what they're actually doing, given that they are saying that they're complying with, you know, Grut, Grutter and Gratz, and, you know, the thrust of which is to try to make things less numerical and more holistic. I, th I think the trouble for the court is going to be, you know, if they rule against Harvard and North Carolina, I think the impulse is for the schools to not stop entirely what they're doing, but just to try to get more holistic and kind of more sort of, you know, sort of even more fuzzy about sort of how this whole process works. And I just, I, I think that's going to bother some of the justices in the back of their mind from both the standpoint of they're not going to want to sort of put some kind of clarion ruling out there that's just going to be overruled in practice. And on the other hand, you know, the fact that this may be difficult to enforce, um, I, you know, I think, I think the Seth Waxmans of the world are going to want to use that to try to portray the process here of what's at issue in universities' admissions as being quite different from a lot of the other contexts where race is verboten. This is, you know, it's not sort of as, as, as sort of discrete a question as like, do you get to vote or not? Or, you know, are you even eligible for a particular kind of job? And so I, I think it's going to be, you know, like you were alluding to um, at, at, the, at the point that the court was wrestling with the masterpiece baking case. I sort of joked that like the question presented in the case is like, what is baking? Is, is, is it speech or is it or is it not speech? Because it's kind of like what the case came down to, because you probably can't discriminate on the basis of sexual orientation if you're Dunkin' Donuts and all you're doing is plunking out donuts that all look the same. But if you're sort of a cake artist, then maybe the issues are different. And here in some ways, I think lurking in the background is going to be the question of like, what is the admissions process? And I think the universities are going to present this as being something that's, you know, not strictly about merit, and is about sort of their autonomy to sort of put together a class. Um, and I think some of the justices are going to be skeptical about that. But I think that's, that's going to be another piece of this that, that I think is worth watching. Jeff, the other aspect of these cases, if you could just quickly uh, highlight it, is they were originally consolidated, but they've since been unconsolidated. Uh, why is that? And what, if anything, should we make of that? I, I, I don't know. I suspect it's because Justice Jackson announced that, you know, or, or made clear that she would recuse from the Harvard case uh, because of her involvement on, on one of the boards at Harvard. Um, and so I suspect that the court decoupled them so that she could participate in the consideration of the, the UNC case. Uh, Paul, 
if we could talk about a pair of cases that you're involved with, the Axon versus FTC case and the SEC versus Cochrane case. Sure. Thank you for asking about them. And I'll talk about them just briefly, but maybe I'll, I'll sort of introduce the topic by going all the way back to the beginning of the panel and talking about that first uh, Sackett case where the question was, you know, did the Sackett family essentially have to sort of wait through the EPA process before they could bring their challenge? Or could they say at the beginning of the process, wait a second, this is crazy. Our property is not within the jurisdiction of the federal authorities. There's sort of an analogous question that has that arises all the time in the context of uh, administrative agencies, particularly when the challenger thinks that there is something structurally problematic um, about the agency. And that could be everything from your whole agency is unconstitutional and Humphrey's executor should be overruled, or it could be something more modest, like, okay, the first thing that's going to happen to us when we walk into this agency is we're going to have we're going to have a hearing before an administrative law judge who is not removable by the FTC or the president, um, but is like removable for cause by the Merit System Protection Board, which in turn is only you know removable for cause, and that violates the separation of powers. And you can imagine lots of other arguments as well, but they're not they're not arguments that like in the context of the Federal Trade Commission, and you're thinking about a proposed merger. It's not an argument that we should get to merge, and you're wrong about the antitrust analysis. It's a more structural challenge that goes to the. Authority authority of the agency. And the question in both the Axon case and the Cochrane case is whether or not those kind of structural challenges to agencies um, can be brought in district court before you get sort of sucked into the agency process, or whether those are challenges that you really can't bring until you've endured the whole agency process that you're alleging is unconstitutional. Maybe from the way I pitched that question, you can you you can understand that I'm representing the challenger here, Axon, who in the FTC case thinks that the agency procedures and structure is unconstitutional, and we think we should be able to bring that pro challenge and essentially prevent the constitutional injury before the constitutional injury happens um, by going through the process. And so that's that's the nature of the issue before the court. Um, analogous issue in the Cochrane case about going before the SEC. In both cases, you have some other challenges, but you also have, I think, what is a very strong challenge on the merits to the constitutionality of the removal process for the administrative law judges before both agencies. So on the one hand, this can seem kind of you know boring and procedural, but on another hand, at least if you know, you're a lover of the separation of powers, as I am, this I think is kind of a sleeper set of cases and are more important than meets the eye. Because you know, right now, the, the court has had a little bit of a problem in some of its separation of powers cases, which is it's, it's vindicated the structural separation of powers, but it's like the litigant in the case sort of gets what's behind door number two and just gets sent home with a consolation prize. They don't get any actual relief in the case. This happened in the Free Enterprise case where there was a challenge to the double four-cause removal in the SEC process. Successful challenge, no meaningful relief. Um, it happened in the Lucia case where there was a successful challenge to the ALJs and the appointments in that context, and they were, you know, again, no kind of meaningful relief. And it happened in the Celia Law case um, that, again, you had a situation where the constitutional separation of powers were vindicated, but you didn't really have any concrete relief for the party. And, what, you know, and, 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 and a lot of times if the, if the challenge isn't brought until afterwards, not only is the constitutional injury already revisited, but it's pretty hard to remedy the violation at that point. Whereas if you can bring the challenge at the outset, um, it provides a mechanism to get the issues kind of front and center earlier and you can get a remedy that actually prevents you from having to endure a administrative process that's unconstitutional. It seems like you know if the court sides with Axon and Cochrane in this case, it is going to make it sort of easier to bring separation of powers challenges to agencies. Um, I think that's a plus. I don't think there's actually a lot to be said for allowing agencies that are unconstitutionally structured to operate that way for years while somebody kind of waits to be able to bring the challenge. 
And I actually think the administrative law judge issue here kind of illustrates the problem. I mean, the, there, there's no question that the removal process for an ALJ is the kind of double four-cause removal process that was condemned in the Free Enterprise Fund case. And the only argument that you could do that to ALJs would be that they weren't principal officers, but the Supreme Court basically rejected that theory in Lucia. So it's, it's, it's for three or four years now, it seems to me that the constitutional writing has been on the wall on this issue. But yet nobody's been able to just go into court and the administration, perhaps not surprisingly, just it's business as usual, even though they have to know in their heart of hearts that these ALJ uh, and, and as they're currently structured are constitutionally problematic. So I, I think this case is maybe more important than, than meets the eye and may sort of set the stage for there being some additional kind of robust uh, separation of powers challenges. I just hope nobody from the government is watching because they now know your intro. So they, you know, they're they could read the they could read our briefs yeah. too. It's it's pretty much all there. Well, we're running short on time, but I did want to ask both of you about uh, two kind of issues that are out in the news and Twitter on the legal commentators' minds uh, a lot these days. The first is on the Supreme Court's emergency motions docket. It's been ominously called the shadow docket. Uh, the court has received some criticism for resolving uh, cases uh, through the emergency uh, motions process. And I was curious to hear your thoughts if you think the justices will change how they handle those emergency motions, moving more over to the merits docket, uh, maybe granting uh, cert, um, you know, before judgment in certain cases. Uh, what are your thoughts on that, Jeff? I mean, I, they already are, right? I mean, so the emergency docket really exploded in the in the last administration, in the very tail end of the uh, of President Obama's second term, with nationwide injunctions. Now, that was only you know about half of the emergency docket, but it was a, a huge part of the the spike. There now seems to be recognition on both wings of the court that nationwide injunctions by a single district judge are a problem. Even Justice Kagan, just within the last few weeks, came out and 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 criticized it. So, you know, the, they could have gone two different ways in the docket. They could have aimed at the nationwide injunctions, the expansion of state standing, some of the things that are making the docket be so much larger than it used to be. Uh, they haven't done that yet. Instead, what they seem to be doing is, um, you know, accepting that and uh, and all, I don't want to say routinizing it, but taking cases from the emergency docket, moving them over to the merits docket, and even on the emergency docket, they're writing more to explain what they're doing on stays and and the rest. So there there uh, there isn't any sign yet that they want to return to the old ways as opposed to adjust to the new normal. And, and, and I'm just glad that you sort of started the question by talking about the emergency docket and only secondarily got to the shadow docket. Um, you know, I, 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 th I think it's important in thinking about how the court is dealing with this to kind of normalize the idea of an emergency docket. You can't run an appellate court without a docket that operates differently from your full-blown merits consideration. I mean, in a world where district courts get to issue preliminary injunctions and temporary restraining orders, and district courts are flawed um, institutions and occasionally get it wrong, you need a way to like deal with those cases, fix those problems promptly without going through the whole process of uh, of, of merits briefing and argument, and that's all an emergency docket is. And you know, back in the day when you know, I think we were clerking on the court. Um, you know, the the real use of the emergency docket was to protect the rights of capital defendants, and nobody seemed to think there was anything anything sinister about that. Um, so the problem, if there's any problem at all, isn't having an emergency docket. Uh, you can talk, you can have a reasonable discussion about whether the court's using it sort of too often or too frequently or without explaining what it's doing. And I think Jeff's right. The court's, the court's receptive to some of the criticism that maybe it was using the emergency docket sort of too often or too frequently. And so they've made a sort of few you know, adjustments here or there at the margins. But I do think the emergency docket is kind of here to stay. Um, and, and, you know, to Jeff's point, I do think that although the court hasn't addressed them yet, um, you know, it, it's, it's probably not too far off that the court actually kind of addresses some of the root causes 
for why the emergency docket was being used more often, like nationwide injunctions, like very permissive state standing uh, in particular contexts. And I think if the court does that, um, that will probably do more in the long run to kind of reestablishing the emergency docket as just being a normal part of an appellate court than, you know, sort of the more cosmetic changes that are being made in the short run. I also wanted to ask both of you your thoughts on the uh, Dobbs leak and the leak investigation. We haven't heard a lot about it uh, since the Chief Justice announced the investigation. We recently heard uh, from several of the justices that there is an investigation, a report will likely be issued soon. Uh, do you think we'll ever find out who the leaker is or uh, what types of reforms do you expect the uh, court to institute? Uh, Paul, if it's okay, we'll start with you. Yeah, I don't. I don't know whether we're gonna ever find out who who was the was the leaker. I mean, I think the fact that we don't know yet um, is probably some indication that we may never know. Um, but um, but I I don't know for sure. Um, in terms of kind of what you know what happens going forward, it it really is. And I think part of the reason that those of us um, who clerked on the court back in the day, sort of, you know, we're all struck and, you know, by the leak and kind of horrified by the leak was just that it's so kind of antithetical to the norms of the place. And I think what it makes, you know, a real challenge for the court is, sure, you could, you could figure out lots of ways to reduce the chances of a leak in the future but they're all going to kind of ultimately hurt the court's function, functioning, the way it's traditionally functioned, the spirit of collegiality. I mean, you know, justices could hang on to opinion drafts longer and only share them initially with justices that they think are likely to join and only kind of later in the process share them with likely dissenters. You could have opinions, you know, kept in draft opinions kept in the functional equivalent of a skiff. Um, for those who've worked in the federal government and know what you know a skiff is, um, it's no fun um, to have to go take your work into a skiff. So there are things you could do, um, but none of them are productive, I think, in the long run. And so, I mean, I, I, I do, I guess, you know, my, my own sense would be, I think, you know, that this is this is obviously a challenge for the chief justice and kind of, you know, bringing the court sort of into into a term and getting this leak kind of in the rearview mirror to a degree. But but I would I would hope that sort of there isn't an overreaction. Um, you know, there's there's much about sort of the Dobbs case that was sui generis. Um, and I don't know. I mean, you know, in, in a sense, like you can look at that leak and say, wow, that's like unbelievable. But you can also look at all of the other controversial cases the court handled for decades where there wasn't a leak. And that's probably the more amazing phenomenon. And I just, you know, I, I think it would be a mistake to lose sight of the fact that, you know, essentially in every other case, um, including like, you know, Bush v. Gore and, you know, I mean, you know, the court hasn't had this kind of thing. And that's all been to the benefit of the court. And it's all, I think, a strong signal that sort of as awful as the leak was, um, it you know, it, it's not a sign that the kind of institution needs some kind of fundamental reform to prevent it from happening again. Okay. Uh, yeah, look, I, I have the same rough take as Paul, and I guess all I would say is you know, I wouldn't be too pessimistic on this. There's never been any breach like this, but there have been some awful breaches in the past. You know, clerks who wrote books like Eddie Lazarus's book and disclosed various things inside the court that were awful. And the court has always kind of managed to return itself to the norm that those of us who um, have been around the place really loved about it, which was that uh, folks didn't do these uh, these sorts of things. And, you know, Dobbs was obviously a terrible example, but there were little dribs and drabs that came out over the years about other cases, uh, you know, usually toward the end of the term. But, you know, tell-all articles uh, by various reporters and, you know, leaks on a case here or there, rumors around town, but it seemed like the court wasn't quite the black box in recent years that it had been. This obviously blew past that and, and crossed the Rubicon. But you know, one hopes that it is an opportunity for all of them to return to what, as Paul says, has been by and large a shared norm 
across chambers and clerks for a very long time. I do think it'll probably mean some unfortunate changes in terms of working outside the building and security systems and logging protocols. But once all that begins to fade in the rearview mirror, you know, my hope is that it returns to the place that that uh, that we we know and love. Well, this has been a fascinating conversation. Unfortunately, we're out of time. I know we'll all be anxiously watching as the court begins its new term next week. Uh, please join me in thanking uh, Jeff and Paul for being here today. Uh, we really appreciate it. Well, thank you all so much for listening. Stay tuned throughout the court's term as Giancarlo and I break down everything that's happening at the Supreme Court. And remember, as always, leave us a five-star rating or subscribe wherever you listen to your podcast. Jean Collar and I look forward to going through the Supreme Court term this year with all of you as we break down what's happening at the Supreme Court here on SCOTUS 101. Case is submitted. You've been listening to SCOTUS 101, brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. Executive produced by Giancarlo Canaparo and Zach Smith. Sound designed by Lauren Evans, Mark Guiney, and John Pop. For more information, visit heritage.org.